0: Please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would help us to think about your Word, to think about you, to think about the life that you've given us, uh, and that you'd give us answers as we study your Word, answers that give us meaning, uh, answers that give us purpose and hope and contentment and the power to forgive others. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there may be no more fundamental question than this one. What's the meaning of life? Now, people ask it in lots of different ways. Why am I here? What's life about? What's the point? Who am I? What matters most? It's a universal question, uh, irrespective of culture, location, standard of living... Uh, Surveys show that around three quarters of people across the globe think about the meaning and purpose of their life either often or sometimes. Many people ask the question and there are many different answers. Uh, Some people find meaning in the present, in how they live right now, Uh, meaning in paid work, being part of a cause that achieves something meaning in the satisfaction and the joy that comes from finishing a job, or maybe the sense of importance that comes with power and influence over people. Other people find their purpose in life in seeking pleasure, Uh, perhaps in adventure or parties or food and wine, rest, holidays, health, fashion, beauty in satisfying some hunger or desire or need. Other people have higher principles. Life is about family and children uh, or maybe friendship and relationships. Life is about the quality of our life, the fulfilment that it brings. Or maybe they seek their purpose in furthering a political or a social cause. Uh, For other people, it's all about the journey It's not so much about what they have right now, but they find meaning in progress, uh, pushing back boundaries in some endeavour. Maybe education or discovery or inventing or exploring, sporting achievement, physical fitness, the ambition for self-improvement, being the best you can be. Other people find meaning in the future in what they can build, but then leave behind. Uh, For them, life is all about enhancing their legacy or their reputation, being famous or being an influencer. Maybe it's saving the planet uh, or building an organisation that will change the world and leave it a better place. Uh, For others, it's focusing on their kids so that their family will grow up and achieve something notable, so that their family name endures. Now, these are all different ways that people find meaning and purpose in their lives. Uh, Of course, for most people, it's not as simple as uh, as one meaning. Uh, For most of us, we build meaning into our lives in multiple ways. Meaning is almost always a, a combination of factors. So what about you? What gives your life meaning and purpose? What is it that if it was taken away would would significantly affect your joy, your contentment, your direction, your ability to thrive and flourish in life? Now in some ways, I guess it doesn't really matter what your answer is, as long as it works, as long as you're happy and, and functional and as long as you're fulfilled. In one sense, if your defining purpose for living is to collect stamps or or to clean up your local waterway or, or to care for stray cats and it works for you, fantastic. But here's the question I want to ask. What about when life falls apart? What about when your purpose for living fails? When you lose that thing that gives your life meaning? When you reach a crisis when the foundations for your life collapse? What do you do when death or loss or suffering takes it all away? How well does your meaning in life work then? How well do you continue to function when life falls apart? Is it still possible to flourish in the face of suffering and loss? Well, that's the question that I think really matters. Not so much what's your purpose, but can your purpose cope with suffering and loss? Because at some point, that's going to happen to everyone uh, with every one of those things that I've mentioned. So here's my proposition. Christianity works. Christianity works because it gives meaning to life that can cope with loss. Well, let's begin by looking at what doesn't work. Uh, We're starting in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's a world-weary reflection of life. It's the fruit of a lifetime study. Uh, The author was an ancient Jewish academic. He he calls himself the teacher. uh, And he looks out at the physical world, the world that humanity has made. He, He calls it everything under the sun, the world with no reference to God. He's investigated it all to see what gives meaning. Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study, to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. And here's his conclusion, verse 14. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. His conclusion? Nothing makes sense. Nothing adds up. Nothing bears the weight of study or scrutiny or or time. You see, in the end, everything will fail. And and trusting in any of those things, it's futile, It's, it's pointless. He calls it chasing after the wind. And then from verse 16, he he starts to list some of the dead ends he investigated. Uh, First up, the actual process of investigating meaning. Study, knowledge, research. Uh, Maybe that gives life meaning. Uh, Look at verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a a chasing after the wind. For uh, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. His conclusion, the more you know, the more problems you find. The more you realise how pointless everything is. So next he moves on to pleasure. Chapter 2 verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? Whatever it is that brings the pleasure, at some point it ends. And you haven't achieved anything except good feelings for a moment. And you wake up the next morning and life continues and nothing's changed. And then the whole process, the whole cycle begins again. It's futile. So next, verse 4, he throws himself into work. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He's looking for purpose in building a legacy, changing things for the better, perhaps even making a paradise on earth. Next, verse 7, he looks to power and influence to give meaning. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. This is the power over people. And then add to that the power that wealth brings. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women, women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. This is the power over people to satisfy his every desire. And the result of it all in verse 9 was that he had a reputation, he had fame and He rose above everyone else. Verse 9 I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. As he worked through the options, he stayed in control. He kept taking his notes. He kept conducting his experiment. Verse 10 He thoroughly investigated, he searched out everything. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labour. At the end of the day, there was a satisfaction of a job well done, finishing a task. So, is that the answer? Is the meaning of life found in completing work, a project finished? Well, no, look at verse 11, because even that doesn't last. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Work. It gives a momentary sense of fulfilment. There's the satisfaction of achieving. But jump forward a year or ten years, or a hundred years. And what's really changed from all your work? What was the point? Down in verse 18, he, he gives his conclusion. I hated all the things I'd toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. Our work, it changes things. that We accumulate and then we die and someone else benefits. If death ends everything that we do here, then what's the point? Even the teacher's great work, in the end, it's found to be meaningless. So what does that say for the far less significant work that we all do? But Ecclesiastes isn't all negative. Uh, The writer goes on to give us some hints about where meaning can be found. Rather than looking under the sun... We have to look above the sun. We have to look to God and his plans and purposes. But rather than look any more at Ecclesiastes and its answers, I, I want to jump across to the New Testament, uh, to Romans chapter 8, uh, because it's here that we can see a clear contrast to what Ecclesiastes says about the meaninglessness, uh, the meaninglessness of life under the sun. It's a perspective on life that will give us meaning even in the face of suffering and loss. It begins, verse 18, with a very realistic view of the world. But at the same time, it describes a hope which is beyond this world. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we will be revealed in us, Now, on the one hand, Christianity acknowledges that the suffering in this world, it's real, it's widespread. We all experience it in one way or another, at one time or another. It may be physical or emotional, relational suffering. It may be good things that that are twisted and corrupted. It may be bad things that, that continue without relief. It might be the way death brings good things to an end, like the joy of relationships. And it's not just human suffering. The whole creation experiences this frustration of things not working the way they should, things that degenerate from order to chaos, from usefulness to brokenness, tsunamis, Species extinction, global warming, bushfires, deadly pandemics. And if this world was all that there is, it'd all be meaningless. Pain, frustration, suffering, and then you die. But the message of the Bible is that the eternal God built eternity into his creation he created it with no expiry date. Eternity beyond the finiteness of death. He created people to be eternal. But he also created uh, but also the creation that we live in is eternal. He's created a glorious, unbroken, unlimited, untainted paradise. And no matter, no matter how bad and frustrating that suffering is, verse 18 says it's not worth comparing to the future glory. It's nothing compared to the joy, the completeness, the sheer goodness of this eternity that God's planned. But it's not just that future that God has in control. Surprisingly, verse 20 says that even the frustration and the brokenness that we experience right now is God's will. See there in verse 20? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now that sounds depressing. It sounds confusing that the bad things that we endure now are somehow part of God's plan a good, wise and powerful God. Surely, we think, if God was good and powerful and wise, he would stop that suffering. He would make life better. He would make it fairer and less painful. Unless, of course, God knows better. Unless his wisdom is greater than ours. Unless his definition of better is different to ours. And both those things are true. You may find it difficult to accept that it's the will of a good, powerful and wise God to let you suffer. But let me suggest that that's better than the alternative, which is that a good God is not in control of the mess of this world. It's better than the view that your suffering is just random, chaos, bad luck. Now that's what the humanist says. And I suggest it's also preferable to what the Buddhist says. The Buddhist says that life is only pain because you desire the wrong things. You desire comfort and relationships. The problem is not God, the problem is with you and your desires. And so the secret is to cut yourself off from the world. To want things less. There's the solution. That's what Buddhism teaches. But where's the joy? Where's the joy in life in that? It's preferable to what the Muslim says. The Muslim says, we can't know what God is like. He's mysterious. Any purpose that He has for me is is just unknowable. And all I can do is submit to His will. That's Islam. But if you jump down to verse 28, you can catch a glimpse of how God uses our suffering. For many Christians, these are their favourite Bible verses. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God uses all things in this world. God uses even bad things, things that cause suffering, to work out his good purposes. And the good he works out is not how we might define good. Our comfort, our pleasure or satisfaction or safety or health or happiness. Notice firstly that he works out his plans for those who love him, those he calls to be his children, those he calls to know him and to love him. You see, that's what we were made for. That is our meaning in life to know God, to be known by him, to be his children. And then for those who are his children, his purpose for their life, there in verse 29, his purpose is that they be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the good that he works in them or for them. That's his plan. It's the plan that he destined them for. And then he called them to know him. And then he he declared them to be right with him. And then he uses the good and the bad things in this life to grow them into the likeness of Jesus, to grow their patience, their contentment, their joy and generosity and goodness and trust and trustworthiness. And then finally, he will glorify them He will restore, complete and raise them. He'll liberate them and liberate this broken, frustrating, superseded world. That is the message of Christianity. It's the message that gives meaning to life and it's meaning that can cope with suffering and loss. So what's all of this mean for how a Christian, faces life. What's the application of this truth? Well, the passage in front of us in Romans 8, it suggests at least two. Firstly, the Christian can face suffering with confidence and trust in God. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When we look at God, we see someone who loved us so much, he gave his only son. And he's working all of the painful suffering of the world for our good. And so when we look at the world we see nothing that can harm us. All the fearful causes of suffering they lose their power in the face of a God who is for us like that. The second application is that we can live with patient expectant hope in the face of our suffering. Hope It's a powerful enabling force that can produce perseverance, stickability. Verse 23 describes how we wait eagerly for our final adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then in verse 24 we read, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it, Patiently, We don't yet see everything God's promised us but we wait for it patiently and confidently even as we suffer because we know that the God who gave us his only son and who's working all things for our good. That is why Christianity works. It gives meaning to life that can cope with loss